Let's all stand and read from Mark 4, 35 through 41, and then we'll have a prayer. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Father, we pray in this morning as we're together as brothers and sisters, Lord. We pray that uh, you be with us in these moments. And Lord, we're mindful of Angie's dad, and I just pray that you be with her family in these moments, Lord. I pray you surround them with your love. I pray, we pray for healing on her dad. We pray he wakes up, Lord. But I pray that in the midst of what feels like a storm, that you are there with her family, speaking peace. And Lord, in this moment, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to your spirit. And may your spirit transform us this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. So my family and I have two approaches to vacation, and this may be y'all as well. There are three of us who prefer going to the beach and sitting next to the ocean. Who is that in here? Okay. I'm not one of you. Then there is one of us who prefers the mountains. And I'll let you guess which one that is. But anyways, the ocean is always at the top of the list when it comes to planning any vacation for the year. We have to find beach time at some point in our 365 days. And if not, my family will go without me. And I imagine that probably goes for us, most of us in the room. There's just something about the ocean. There's just something about standing at the edge and, and looking out into the vastness of the water. And I remember once when I, we went to San Diego and I was with ACU and it was spring break campaigns, or this mission effort that ACU does during spring break. And our group was standing at the top of the cliff in San Diego, top of this cliff where you could see all of San Diego. And it was this unbelievable overlook in which you could see. And you could see the beauty of the city. You could hear from there, you know, the sirens. It was just this really cool thing. When one of my friends in the group comments and says, Hey, look over there. Is half the city, is it, is it having a power outage? And we all looked at my friend, and then we looked at that area, and then someone who is a resident of San Diego said, that's the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> There's just something mysterious and ominous about when we're looking at night and you see all of these lights and then you hit what is this deline- I mean, this line that marks and it goes black for as far as the eye can see. And that's the thing about the ocean. It's both peaceful but also wild. We know but we don't know what lurks underneath the water. As I was reminded of this picture one of the largest jellyfish ever in the ocean. What do you think about that? So our text for today in Mark 4, that that you read this week, locates the entire chapter 
by and on the sea. Mark tells us that Jesus teaches on a boat with the crowd beside the sea in verse 1. The sea for the audience of the first century is not some tranquil place where cruises happen and parties take place like we know about it. The sea is not some kind of place of enjoyment and relaxation. The sea was anything but relaxing to first century people. For the sea was a place of chaos. The sea held an untenable power to the readers and residents of the first century. We can't help but be drawn to the many stories of the Old Testament. You know, when Jesus part, when God parts the Red Sea in Exodus, and the story of Jonah, just to name a few, when it kind of goes crazy, and do you remember what their idea is? Let's just throw Jonah off, and then it'll calm down. The sea was viewed as a place of chaos, and as one writer says, when speaking about the sea metaphor of Revelation, It is a place of uncreation and cosmic tumults. When we read Revelation, we notice that at the end, the sea is no more. There's no sea. And so from the moment that Jesus begins teaching to the crowds and and later to the disciples, to the final scene where Jesus and the disciples are crossing the sea, all of Mark 4 is located on a tumultuous location. And so our text for today that we just read in 35 through 41 is the ending scene of Jesus' teaching moment. He has taught the crowds through a parable at the beginning of the chapter. And for most of us reading it from verse 3 to verse 9, we know this parable. We've read this parable. For those of us who grew up in the church going to uh, Sunday school, we know the parable of the sower and the seeds. We've read it numerous times. But here's the thing about parables. They're a bit of a tricky thing especially for listeners that day. I know Justin last week introduced us to the concept and teaching style that Jesus would use this parable in Mark 3, 23 through 27. And it was tricky for them, but let's not make any mistakes here. It can be tricky for us today as well. It can be as tricky for those who are standing and listening to it for the first time. It, can be as tri- it was tricky for them, and it can be tricky for us. Because here's the thing about parables. Parables have this way of shaking up the status quo. And if you haven't noticed anything about where I've been going in Mark, we've noticed that if there's one thing Jesus has done in the first four chapters, it's shake up the status quo. Jesus is causing questions to be asked about who this person is. And if the thing the parable does, parables do are, they seem to shake up the status quo. Parables challenge the ordinary way of thinking about things. And in Jesus' case, he uses parables to look at the kingdom of God and what it will be and what it's going to do in the world. And it can be easy for most of us when we read a parable of Jesus to already think, oh, we got this. I've read it long enough. I've got it. I completely understand it. What's wrong with these people? Why didn't they understand it? How could those not listening, especially with this parable, not Get it. We tend to do that when we read the Bible ever. Is We think we got it because we've read it enough. We think we understand it. We place ourselves, most of us in here, as insiders to the kingdom. We got it. But when we read Mark 4, what do we find out? The insiders, right, those disciples actually struggle with understanding what the parable of the sower is about. Look at verse 4.13. As they don't understand it, he said to them, are you, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase this, 
What's wrong with you? You've been with me this long. How can you not get it? And the, parents and the disciples are like, yeah, we don't get it. After everything they've witnessed in the life of Christ, they still don't understand what the kingdom of God will look like, and there are still so many questions. And that's a lot like many of us. We still have questions, do we not? We still have struggles. And yes, we even have moments of disbelief. We hear and read the words of Christ, and, and we wonder and we question. And it's here when we realize that the parables in Mark 4 may have to do more with those inside the kingdom of God than those on the outside. We read a lot thinking that Jesus is pointing to the outside. But what we may find in, in Mark 4 is the parables, I think, have a lot more to do with those on the inside, what they're doing. As Jesus explains the parables, and we're going to go through these somewhat quickly. As Jesus explains the parables, the disciples are warned that opposition will come to the kingdom of God and its followers. It, as we see with the throwing of the seeds, it, the world and its powers, will continue to tempt and seduce the followers of Jesus in all kinds of creative ways. Everything the world has in the toolbox, it's going to use to try to pull the followers away. The nature of the kingdom, as Jesus shows us, is to provoke and subvert the powers and principalities of the day. What Jesus is doing over the first three chapters is going to be the norm of the kingdom. The kingdom and its followers will never align with power, but will be a critique of power at every level. The next series of parables direct us to, to the disciples and, and, and actually offer the disciples a bit of hope. Whatever opposition comes their way, Jesus speaks in the parables to a mysterious growth of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom is still going to grow. It's going to kind of just happen, which is kind of good news because it means that God's going to be doing the work and it's not completely on us. The parable should offer encouragement and trust that, that God will continue to move ahead of us and that God will employ God's ways for the good news to spread to the far reaches of the earth. And we probably noticed that as you read it. Jesus kind of makes this big swath of people who will know the good news. And so Jesus hands these parables to the disciples. Remember, disciples who still in verse 13 say, yeah, I don't get it. And that brings us full circle to chapter 4, verse 35. I missed that one, sorry. And I missed that one. You get the drift. But there's this whole thing, it brings us full circle to this, in which, which they come back to the sea, and they're getting ready to push off, and, and the disciples have been with Jesus to hear all the insider information about the movement of the kingdom. And, and these 12, as we begin to see, are the ones entrusted with that kingdom of God and what that kingdom of God will be in the world. And they are trusted to trust and believe that God is now present and moving through Jesus. And whatever Satan and the powers try to throw against them, that Jesus has, as he says in verse Chapter 3, verse 27, he has gone into the big house and he has bound the strong man. And they are told that they should believe this. But what we find in this verse, in verse 37, is something different. What we find is that faith is hard. Faith is just hard. 
Throughout everything Jesus said in this first chapter, as we look at the parables very quickly, as Jesus is trying to offer hope and tell them, we get to this point in verse 37 when a great windstorm arose. The minute they push off the docks, the sea will do whatever it takes to stop Jesus and the disciples from going to the other side. The ominous body which held demonic powers in the first century's mind will now churn up and will pound against the boat from all sides. This is the moment in which the disciples are at peril on the sea where even the fishermen couldn't figure it out. It had them in peril. One minute the waters are calm, then out of nowhere the storms shake up. And if we think about that moment, and we think about faith being hard, I think we can all understand when everything feels calm in one moment, when everything just feels like it's going right, when life just feels good, everyone is on the same page. Then in the next minute, everything turns upside down. Whatever we thought we knew, Whatever we thought we felt is all out of sorts with what we are experiencing. And that's the thing about faith. Faith is easy when everything's going well. Let's be honest. Faith is incredibly easy when everything is going well. It's amazing how large and in charge you can be for Jesus. When life is good. When the business is humming when health is steady, when the paychecks are easy, faith is easy. And that's kind of a narrative that goes on in the Christian faith, that a strong faith will lead to a life of ease, that somehow faith can make us immune from the struggles and doubts. And, and we at times have probably been caught guilty of questioning somebody whose faith is just a little uneasy. Because it's this narrative we keep telling ourselves. Everything goes good if faith is good. But what we see in Mark 4 is that demonic powers are not just shielded from us because we're followers of Jesus. In fact, what Jesus says is it's going to be just the opposite. Our faith will be tested in this life. The powers will not leave us alone because we are Christ followers. Quite the opposite is true as we read the witness of Scripture. We find ourselves wondering if the sea will have the final say in our lives. How many of us have wondered if the storm that we're going through today, the storm that you'll go through tomorrow, will have the final say on your life? That that will be the definition of your life. And that's where we realize that maybe Mark 4 was speaking more to the insiders of the kingdom than the outsiders. Because even if the disciples struggled with understanding the kingdom, struggled with trusting it in its life, and themselves asking at the end of the chapter in verse 41, just who exactly is this guy? I like what Brian Blunt says, and he says it this way about the parables and this whole situation of Mark 4. And he says this, he says, It's one thing to have been given the secret that Jesus represents the power of God's kingdom in his preaching ministry. It's quite another to comprehend what that representation means for how one must live one's life. The disciples got all of the secrets. The disciples knew everything about the kingdom they could know. It was about trusting. It was about an embodiment of trust. 
And what do we see in our, passage, in our passage for today? Those entrusted with the secrets of the kingdom can and do shrink from their faith by the tossing and the turning of the sea. What do we do when the tossing and the turning of the sea comes into our own lives? And how do we respond to it when it comes into the life of the church? How do we respond to those moments when the storm begins to churn all around us? Where do we find that our trust lies? If we're honest with ourselves, then maybe the response of the disciples doesn't feel so far-fetched. How many times have we found ourselves crying to God and saying, Lord, don't you care that I am drowning? How many times as a church have we found ourselves saying, Lord, we have been around for 140 years. Don't you care that we're struggling right now? We've all found ourselves in the shoes of the disciples wondering, where are you, God? The parables are a reminder for us today that what the disciples were still trying to figure out in Mark 4, that Christ can get up and notice what he does. He just calms the sea. And here's the good news. We can't calm the seas most of the time. But Christ in us can. Faith is hard. What does your faith look like today? The disciples in this moment exchanged trust for panic when the storms came. Why? Because the myth that the powers of the sea were real to them. And for them, it could even be more powerful than the Messiah. The world calls us today to place our faith in the idols of the world, the modern conveniences of your life. Tell it it's all about you. And the faith in the idols and things of this world tell us that faith is easy. You got this. But what happens when the storms come? A lot of those idols, have you ever noticed, tend to crack and break and fall apart. And maybe that's what the parables are calling us to pay attention to the world. The parables call us to see the world differently, to see faith differently, that to know that storms will come. But today, do we trust the good and mysterious power of God to quiet those storms? It's one thing to know the secrets. It's yet another for your life to embody that knowing of the secrets. Jesus stands to bear witness to the power of the kingdom amid the great storms in the sea of life. Jesus shows that in the kingdom that there should be no fear at what lies just underneath the surface. That, that faith is hard, and even when we know everything, faith can be difficult. But here's the good news. Notice where Jesus stands in the middle of the storm. Jesus gets up, stands right in the middle of the storm, right in the middle of their fears, right in the middle of their doubts, right in the middle of their lack of faith, and calms the sea. Amid the uncertainty of life, Jesus with the word says, you're going to get to the other side because I'm with you. And get this, no storm is stronger than the one who created all of this. I like what Martin Luther said. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Yesterday, I went to a friend of mine's, my parents' friend's uh, funeral. Man, I'd grown up with, been, you know, just a family friend all my life. And at 69, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And uh, there was this thing that was said over and over about his life. And when he was diagnosed, 
And you can imagine this, like you have a couple years to live. There's five grandkids, all of this. And the funeral yesterday was all about joy. Like we sang the joy bus song, J-O-Y, in his funeral because that's who he is. But here's the thing about it. Mike, in the midst of the storm of cancer, you know what he did? He looked not at the medical professionals who are important, but he looked right next to him and focused on Jesus and said, through this storm, Jesus will be my calm. And so up until the very last day, he had joy on his lips and Jesus in his heart, knowing that the storm in the end still doesn't win because of Jesus. We've been given the secrets. How are you embodying that in your faith? Faith is hard. But the beauty of faith being hard is Jesus stands right there next to you in the storm and continues to say, peace, be still. And we continue to say, who is this guy? I need to keep focusing on this guy because we can't get through the storms ourselves. And maybe you're going through a storm right now. Maybe there's something in life and you've been trying to steer that boat. Maybe you need to let Jesus take over. And there's many of us who understand what you're going through. All of us go through, have gone through the storms and some of us are still going through them. But let us stand beside you in this. When your faith lacks, you remember the guy who came out from the roof? May not have been his faith, it was his friend's faith. Remember that? When your faith hurts, let us stand next to you. We'll have elders up front, I'll be up front, but come now as we stand and as we sing.